The future of the industry probably will be more local. If you go back 10 years and you're building a cement plant anywhere in the world, you're probably building pretty much the same plant. But if we go forward 10 years, then that may very well not be the case because we may find that we're taking advantage of local supplies much more than in the past. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of The War and Current. I'm your host, Ned Downey, PhD student in public affairs at Princeton. And today we've got as our guest, Ian Riley. Ian is CEO of the World Cement Association. It's a global trade association for cement industry producers and stakeholders. He himself is a cement industry veteran. He was most recently country head in Greater China for Wholesome, which is one of the world's biggest cement producers. Now, cement accounts for around 7 to 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions, as we'll discuss. So Ian's going to talk about his work helping the sector decarbonize. And let me tell you, we cover so much in this conversation, right? It's from urban mining and new materials for low carbon concrete to carbon capture to China's distinctive approach to cement decarbonization. We learn why cement production is going to be more local in the future, why stranded assets are a real concern in the industry, and why China's cement emissions may finally have officially peaked. So let's jump right in. Welcome all to the Wharton Current. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm Ned Downey. I'm your host. I'm excited to have Ian Riley. He's the CEO of the World Cement Association, and he's our guest for this week. Ian has been CEO of the World Cement Association since September 1st, 2019, before he was Greater China Country Head for Lafarge Wholesome from 2014 to 2019. That's one of the world's largest cement producers. Before that, he was chairman of the British Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai and had spent time also vice president of Lafarge Wholesome's former subsidiary, Huaxin, based in China. So, Ian, welcome to the Wharton Current. Well, thanks for having me, Edmund. I've just given a little bit of a primer for everybody about your background, but go through it yourself and tell us how you ended up as CEO of the World Cement Association and what you guys do at the World Cement Association. Well, to tell the story, first of all, of how I got involved with cement, I was living in China and was approached by Halsim to help them with the implementation of a SAP system affiliate, Huaxin Cement. And so that's really how I, I got involved with Huaxin. Subsequent to installing the SAP system, I stayed there and uh, was involved in managing the equipment subsidiary that Huaxin had. So this was a subsidiary to manufacture the main equipment that's used in a cement plant, so the kiln, the mills, and so on. And then uh, subsequently, it was responsible for international business for Huaxin. So from China, we expanded to Tajikistan and Cambodia and subsequently other places. And then just before the merger with Lafarge was announced, I moved to Beijing to take over as country head. So then at the initial period of my time as country head was really taken up with the merger preparation and then subsequently the integration of the two operations in China, which took a while. I left uh, Lafarge Halsam in 2019 and shortly afterwards became chairman of the World Cement Association. So in the World Cement Association, we really have three things that we're trying to do. We're trying to give the smaller producers and, and indeed other stakeholders, not just cement producers, but other stakeholders in the cement industry, a voice. The second thing that we try to do is to help our members to improve their efficiency, their production efficiencies, which obviously impact both cost and CO2 emissions. And then thirdly, we wait for and try to keep our members up to date with developments that may help them to decarbonize. 
So as I'm sure you're aware, the cement industry is responsible for about 8% of CO2 emissions globally. The majority of those emissions come from the raw material, the limestone that's used. So when the limestone's heated even to a relatively modest temperature, it gives up the CO2 and becomes calcium oxide. So the emissions that we have are partly as a result of power. That's a very small portion these days, about a third or just less than a third due to the fuel consumption, and then the other two thirds or nearly two thirds due to the breakdown of the limestone in the kiln. And three levers that the industry has traditionally pulled to try to reduce the carbon footprint. The first of those is to make cement with less clinker, which is the product from the kiln and more alternative material. The second is improving the energy efficiency of the processes. And the third is using alternative fuels. So if we use biofuels, for example, or biogenic fuels, these have no fossil CO2. So this is much, much better. But even moving away from coal to waste derived fuels has some benefits in terms of carbon emissions. That's perfect. And that gets right into what I wanted to talk next about, which was to give our listeners a sense of how cement produces emissions and what the ways are that companies are looking to reduce them, which you just described perfectly. I want to jump right into the low clinker cement space that you mentioned, that is novel cement chemistries that would involve replacing the most carbon intensive input, which is clinker, produced from limestone with a different binding agent. Obviously, one of the challenges with cement is that you can't really, so to speak, move fast and break things. You know, when a product fails, a building can collapse. How does that affect the process of adopting new chemistries in cement? And what do you see as the best ways for developers of new chemistries to win customer trust? Yeah, so this has been an issue that goes back a long way. So we probably should distinguish between things that are incremental and, and things that are, are sort of genuinely new. For, for incremental things, it's a little bit easier, you know, because you're just sort of pushing the envelope. So allowing the inclusion of a little bit more of an alternative cementitious material and a little bit less clinker is obviously easier and lower risk than doing something new. So as a general rule, we've seen that standards across the world have become more permissive in allowing more alternative materials to be used. And then in this area, we see some examples, and probably the best one is LC3, which is a cement formulation that's 50% clinker, about 30, 35% calcine clay, about 15% limestone. All of these are components that have been used in cements for a long time. So usually not in such large quantities, but there are now standards in most countries for the use of LC3. So this goes beyond what was allowed a few years ago. I think the bigger challenge is when you get new chemistries. And there, I think the standards are quite conservative because the standards are defined both in terms of the performance they have to produce and also in terms of the components. In most places, you have a component requirement as well. And this is what limits the adoption of potential new technologies. But I think what we see, first of all, is that if you're using it in a non-structural application, there's clearly a lot more flexibility. And if you take paving blocks or something like this, where you're laying paving stones on a sand base or grade base, clearly the result of the impact of failure is not very serious. You know, whereas if you've got a building or a bridge or something like this, obviously it's potentially much more serious. So there are lots of applications, maybe half of cement applications, where the penalty for failure is much less serious than a catastrophic collapse. And so I think that for new materials, this is the right place to start. It will get easier. I think it has already got easier, perhaps, but certainly it will get easier for new materials to be accepted by the standards 
But I think that it makes sense anyway to start in areas where the impact of failure is less severe. And as I say, there's plenty of opportunity to do that. I was talking last week to somebody who had started a company in the UK to produce geopolymers, particularly using steel slag. So blast furnace slag has been used and is an excellent cementitious product, steel slag much less so. And her company is trying to use old steel slag going back to the Industrial Revolution, practically located up in the northeast of the UK. And this was very much the strategy that she was adopting. And I think this is the right way forward. You start with the things where there's limited risk and then move on from there. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it helps put into context also the diversity of different cement applications. There's so many different ways in which cement is used that it's all about finding the right market niche in some way for that newer product. Are there novel chemistries that are really making fundamental changes that you're particularly following or particularly excited about in this space? The things that seem to be attracting most attention at the moment are geopolymers of one sort or another. Now, geopolymers can be made with all kinds of things, and most of the commercial geopolymers have been made with slag, so with blast furnace slag. So it's not really a new material, it's a material used in a different way. And you could say that blast furnace slag geopolymer concrete has very low emissions, but you know we're pretty much using all the blast furnace slag anyways. If we use more of it in one application, we're going to use less of it in another application. So probably the one that the work that's more interesting is where you're using new materials that in the past have not been used for cement, such as steel slag or red mud from the alumina production and so forth. So there are quite a few of those. But I think what they highlight is that the future of the industry probably will be more local. If you go back 10 years and you're building a cement plant anywhere in the world, you're probably building pretty much the same plant, right? Maybe it's a bit bigger, a bit smaller, but you know, it's the same technology and so forth. But if we go forward 10 years, then that may very well not be the case, because we may find that we're taking advantage of local supplies much more than in the past. So that that applies to the clays in the LC3 side, but it also applies to the sort of urban mining opportunities of using old slag and fly ash and mine tailings that currently are just stockpiled, put in dams. And there's a lot of industrial waste that has some potential for use in concrete. We will continue to see OPC or other standard cement as being the mainstay for structural applications and many infrastructure applications. But I think we'll see much more use of local materials in at least the less sensitive applications. Another thing that is also impacting this is the movement towards circularity. So if you're redeveloping an area of a city, then you have buildings there already, you have infrastructure there already. So you've got things, and ideally what you'd like is to reuse as much as possible. So reuse buildings or reuse bridges or whatever. And where you can't reuse the whole, then you'd like to use elements of them. And if you can't use the elements, then reuse the materials. You're not starting with a blank sheet of paper. You're starting with something that you've already got. So that's also kind of a every project's a bit different situation. Looking at it from the material side or looking at it from the circularity and the demands ultimately of the developer or the project owner, we're going to see more focus on what's available locally. That's really interesting. And just to make sure that our listeners understand, some of these materials that you described earlier up front, blast furnace slag, steel slag, red mud, these are all waste products from industrial production processes. Isn't that right? That is waste products from, yes, in this case, exactly. from steel or from aluminum production, right? Yes. 
Exactly. Yeah. So that's really interesting. The insight that cement production going forward is going to be more and more about what's immediately available in your local materials and how those can be incorporated. What one lever for reduction that I noticed that you didn't mention up at the front was uh, carbon capture. And I'd love to hear more about carbon capture and what it might need to take off in cement. So if we look at the traditional three levers that I talked about up front, uh, those three levers both reduce the carbon footprint of the cement and they also reduce costs. And so this is why those have been the levers that have been pulled so far, because it's kind of a win-win. And there's still some mileage in all of that, but it certainly doesn't take us to the point of decarbonizing. Even if we include products like LC3, then perhaps we can reduce by another 25% or 35%, that sort of range with those existing levers, and perhaps adding in the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning to improve the processes, either to improve quality or to improve process control or to reduce downtime due to failures, all of which ultimately add both to energy consumption and carbon emissions. So there's some scope in that cutting costs and cutting carbon space still. But it doesn't take us all the way. And to go beyond that, the only way we know today is CCUS. So CCU obviously is has the advantage that if you're using the CO2, then you're potentially getting some value out of that. And that offsets the cost of carbon capture. With CCS, you're going to have to pay for the storage in addition to the carbon capture and the transportation. So that's a more expensive proposition. But today, the CCU opportunities are relatively small in volume. So while they'll probably play a role, at the moment, it looks as if the majority of the, that last reduction is going to come from CCS. So CCS is pretty expensive. It depends where you are in the world. In some parts of the world, if you're fortunate enough to be sitting on a suitable geological in structure, then the costs are lower. But in Europe, where we've seen CCS projects in the cement industry, they're pretty expensive. And this is basically pumping under the North Sea. So you've got to collect it, you've got to get it there, you've got to pump it there, keep it there. So the optimists probably have the cost of that coming down to $100-ish, perhaps a bit lower if they're very optimistic. And the current ETS price in Europe has been $70 to $100, that sort of area. So you can see that with a little bit higher pricing for carbon, you start to get to the point where it might be economic. But I think the current cost for CCS is significantly higher than that. And most of the projects, of course, so far have largely been funded with government money one way or another. So the answer, I think, based on what we know today, is that a significant chunk of the overall decarbonization of the industry will have to come from CCS. The incentives will need to be in place because the industry certainly can't absorb that because there's so much carbon emitted per tonne of cement and cement is a relatively inexpensive product. So there isn't the margin to absorb that. So I think it will get more expensive because one way or another that's passed on to the consumer. I think that one of the assumptions that many people in the industry make, which is probably not true, is that all players are in the same boat. If you look at the per tonne of cement, they don't vary too much, at least within a country. It varies a bit country to country, depending on the standards and the practices in the country. But within the country, they don't vary very much. And so there's a tendency for everybody to think they're in the same boat. But of course, the cost of decarbonization per tonne of CO2 isn't necessarily the same for all locations. You know, if you happen to be sitting next to some sort of hub and the infrastructure is already in place to take that to a storage field, then your costs are going to be much lower than somebody in the middle of the countryside who has to lay their own pipeline or run trucks or find some other way of, of getting to a storage site. So I think there will be some change in the competitive position of different plants, depending on their cost to decarbonize. And that probably will also have some 
impact in terms of the way that the industry can address decarbonisation. But beyond that, so if we look at it from the standpoint of the built environment, it also can help us to put these things into perspective and help us to set priorities. The built environment is responsible for a very significant amount of overall the two emissions. It doesn't usually show up that way because of the way that these things are cut up. But if you look at it from the standpoint, okay, well, how much carbon is involved in construction of those buildings and then how much usage, you probably have something around 12% or something like this in the construction of buildings and another perhaps is 30% in the usage of buildings, your air conditioning, your heating and so forth. And I think we really have to look at how we address that. So just decarbonizing materials is, in fact, only about a third of the issue. The other part of the issue is, okay, so how do we design buildings or, or retrofit buildings so that they have lower energy consumption? And we can see that, that heavy building materials like concrete and bricks have quite a lot of advantages in the way it, it, the buildings behave and the temperature that they maintain. I live in a Victorian building which has very thick brick walls and high ceilings. And when we had the heat wave here in London this summer, it stayed pretty cool inside the whole time. You know, it's 40 degrees outside and I don't know, mid-20s inside, of course, with no air conditioning. So we can see that there's a lot to be done in thinking about the way that we design buildings so that they have lower energy consumption. Well, yeah, it's a whole life cycle vision that you have to have a footprint at each stage production, but also in operation as well. I want to jump now to your time in China and some of the experiences that you had there and the insights that you've gotten from it. More than half the world's cement is produced in China. You were country head for one of the largest multinationals in cement in China from 2014 to 2019. And then you had also been in China before then for eight years. So tell us about China and cement decarbonization. What was that discussion like when you were there? And how do you think it's evolved since then? So China has approached this in a different way. And in fact, it approaches industrial regulation in a different way from pretty much everywhere else. So if you were to take the US or Europe, then our approach would be to set emission limits. Let's take NOx as an example. So NOx is one of the emissions from a plant. And if you don't meet the limit, then you get penalized. So what happened on NOx in China was that the limit was probably a little bit higher than the US and Europe, but similar to many parts of the world. China decided in the late 2000s that NOx was a very serious problem that caused a lot of the air quality problems in the cities. The air quality in Beijing in particular, but in many of the cities in China, was very poor. And uh, so when we had big events organized like the Olympics, then everything for hundreds of miles around had to shut down for a couple of months before the event so that the air was clean for the event. So China started bringing in stricter regulations for all, all of the key industries. So obviously power generation, coal power generation being probably the most serious and cement and so forth as well. But instead of just bringing in lower limits, they also mandated the use of particular technology, in this case, SNCR technology for reduction in NOx. And they also set out a sort of track that they expected to follow. So that initially the requirement came down from 800 ppm down to 400 and then subsequently further decreased. So in the low emission zones now in China, you have limits as low as 50 or 100, which is much lower than elsewhere in the world. So it's this combination of early signaling of the intent to enforce standards more strictly, coupled with mandating particular technologies. So we've seen this in China on NOx. We've seen it also with energy consumption. With energy consumption in the West, it's okay, well, if you consume more energy, it costs you more money. But the Chinese weren't satisfied with that. So they brought in energy standards for cement 
And if you didn't meet the energy standards, there was no penalty. And then after a few years, if you didn't meet the energy standards, you had to pay higher tariffs. And then after a few more years, if you didn't meet the energy standards, you had to shut down. Consequently, of course, people invested in upgrading the energy performance of the plants because they could see this coming and they knew that if they didn't do this, they would not be able to uh, stay in business. But in that area as well, there was also particular technologies like waste heat power generation that was mandated. So the Chinese ran some trials, demonstrated the feasibility of the technology and then gave the industry five years to install it on all of the lines. So you see in China, waste heat power generation is installed on virtually all cement lines and outside China on maybe 20 or 25% of the lines. And if you look at the overall consumption of Chinese plants, it's very much lower than it is in Europe or North America. Not only the energy consumption, but NOx emissions, dust emissions, the cleanliness of the plants. And it is quite extraordinary how it's changed in the last 20, 25 years. I want to come back to actually this point that you made on comparing China and Europe and the US and standards here in a little bit. But I want to stay on China for a little bit longer. So looking forward, China has talked about peaking its emissions across the economy by 2030. And the cement sector will be an important part of this story. It accounts for around 15% of China's emissions. Over the past year, as at least as of October, cement output in China is down around 11%. And this reflects major declines in property sales associated with some struggles in the real estate sector. This is something that people have expected for a long time. The real estate sector's continued growth has maintained cement demand relatively flat for around a decade right now. So this fall of 10 percent is quite significant. What I want to ask is this, is this a structural change in China's cement demand? That is, are we ever going to get back to 2.5 billion tons of cement output like in 2014? And if it is, does that mean that Chinese cement emissions probably have peaked at this point? So the simple answer is probably yes, it does mean that they've peaked. So going back to 2014, which was when basically the market stopped growing and we saw it leveling off, we anticipated that after a relatively short time, we'd start to see this decline and a decline to a level that's perhaps half the current level. Nobody really knows, but you go from a situation where you're having to build a lot of new stuff to a situation where you're basically replacing old stuff. So you just need to build a lot less. So the level of consumption in China is much higher than it is elsewhere in the world. In the US and the UK have particularly low cement consumption because a lot of building is done in other materials, brick and wood and so on. But even comparing to, say, France, which uses a lot of cement, relatively speaking, about 400, 450 kilos per capita and Chinese using 1.7 tons. And in terms of cumulative consumption, the Chinese are pretty much caught up with other countries and they were obviously behind initially, but with that sort of level of consumption, of course, you catch up pretty quickly. So we've been expecting certainly since about 2000 that the cement consumption would decline. And what happened with the initial COVID was that the government brought forward some infrastructure projects to help buoy the economy. So this obviously will create a hole in the demand subsequently. And so I think what we're seeing with this reduction is not only a reduction in the real estate projects, in the housing and the commercial construction, but it's also a reduction in new government projects. And several people have said to me that there are still announcements about new projects, but in a lot of cases, the work has not actually started. You get an announcement and then nothing happens. I think we will continue to see a decline. This decline is long anticipated and has surprised everybody with how long it's taken to come. I guess we can't completely rule out that additional stimulus measures might reverse that briefly, but I think the expectation is that we'll see a decline from 
the current level, which I suppose will be around 2 billion tons this year, down to perhaps 1.2 billion tons in the next perhaps 15 years. That's extraordinary. It makes me want to ask about this question of stranded assets, because it's something that I think it comes up for me in the context of China, but also in the context of other countries that are where cement demand is not going to grow around the world, and we're going to face decarbonization pressures. So stranded assets, something that people pay a lot of attention to in the power sector, that is investments in coal and gas where companies will not recoup the value of that asset over its lifetime because demand is going to disappear for these fuels. In cement, what's the conversation about stranded assets right now? I can see in China, you have falling demand, but even in countries where you don't necessarily have the same kind of precipitous drop in demand to come, is the transition in production processes moving to lower clinker cements, for instance, or finding ways to add carbon capture and things like that, is that going to affect the ability of assets to recoup their value over their lifetime? And what does that mean for the sector? Yeah, so this is a huge challenge for the sector. You can split the world, I think, into areas where we're going to see a decline in demand, primarily China, where we're going to see significant growth, which is primarily Africa and the Indian subcontinent, and the rest where it's probably not going to change. And and I should say, really, I'm talking about the demand for concrete, because obviously cement is a bit more complicated because it depends what happens in terms of the growth of alternatives. But you have quite a potential, I think, to improve efficiencies in the whole supply chain. So, for example, if you have a, a small to medium-sized project, it probably makes sense to use a single grade of concrete for everything because logistically it's difficult to arrange different truckloads of the different grades. But that means you're over-specifying the concrete in a lot of cases because obviously if you're going to use the same concrete everywhere, you have to specify it at the maximum level, which is going to use the most cement. And as people start to worry more about the carbon footprint rather than just the cost, then they're probably going to make different choices on that. And that's just one example, but there are lots of opportunities to optimize the use of the right grade of concrete. I think we'll see some material replacement, perhaps not so significant, but just because one of the things to remember, of course, with concrete is just it's the most used material we have. So we use just a huge amount of concrete and cement every year. It's not easy to find replacement materials in enough quantities. So even if they're much better from whatever standpoint, then the question is, well, how much is available? Timber obviously has the ability to store carbon rather than to emit carbon. And so from that standpoint, it's attractive and it can be used in many applications. But on the other hand, the supply of timber is going to be limited. So there'll be some effect from replacing concrete with other building materials, but probably not so large. And then you've got all of the work that's being done to make concrete with less clinker in it, basically, either by producing lower clinker factor cements or by other means. So when you take all of that into consideration, even if demand for concrete is broadly flat, with reductions in China being offset by increases in India and Africa, you would expect the demand for clinker to be significantly reduced. And so when you take that into account, alongside the fact that in many countries, the kiln utilization is already pretty low. In most countries, we see plant utilization, which is 60 or 70%, so already quite a lot of additional capacity. If you go to less clinker requirement, then that obviously exacerbates that. Some of the alternative technologies can use the same equipment. So there is some potential of repurposing equipment. But I think inevitably, there must be a significant amount of stranded plant. Yeah, that's tricky. And it's something that you're seeing in steel as well. 
and in the normal power sector. So something that policymakers need to think about carefully, particularly in countries where the cement industry is large and a major employer, is how to manage that transition in a way that serves economic and decarbonization interests at the same time. Yeah, and we should remember that this is primarily a problem in the developing world. Yeah. Uh, so cement is mainly produced in the developing world anyway. Only perhaps 10% or so is produced in developed economies. And uh, most of the plants in, in Europe and North America and Japan as well, for that matter, are relatively old. Some of them might arguably already have exceeded the life expectancy that their builders had, but the newer plants tend to be in the developing world. So you've got a problem with both the younger plants, in many cases, higher per capita consumption because of the stage that they're going through in terms of building the country. So this is going to be a more serious problem in countries that are less able to afford policies to offset this. That's a great point. And that segues nicely into the question that I wanted to ask next, which was about this decarbonization and the role of the developed and developing world. So as you said, 90% or so of cement production is in the developing world. And so in a lot of ways, when we're talking about cutting cement emissions, we need to be thinking about cutting them in the developing world. On the other hand, there's a mental map that I think a lot of people have on emissions cuts, which is that cutting emissions is expensive. And so the first consumers that are going to foot the bill are going to be the ones in the developed world who say, I'll pay a higher premium. So when it comes to emissions reductions, where do you think the developing world is going to lead? And in what ways do you think the developed world might be a leader as well. Yeah, so we can look, of course, at where the majority of the production is going to be. And we've already talked about China, but there's also a lot of production in India. So I think with the Chinese situation, China represents about 57% of global cement production and consumption at the moment. So it's obviously significant and very important. And the industry in China has new targets from the government on reduction of energy consumption. And I think in China, also a lot of interest in LC3, so a lot of interest in reducing clinker factors, a lot of interest in using industrial waste materials that are not currently being used, as we discussed earlier. But I think also in terms of carbon capture and storage, most of the work in China is taking place in the coal-fired power sector. But obviously, once those technologies and infrastructure is developed, it will be applied to other industries as well. We don't hear a lot of the talk in the Chinese cement industry about carbon capture and storage at the moment, but I don't think that's because they don't see it happening. I think it's because they see the power sector doing it first and let's wait and see what it entails and then we'll understand what we have to do. The expectation from Chinese cement companies seems to be that they'll have to completely decarbonize, get to zero emissions long before 2060. So although China has committed to 2060, they don't think that they don't have that long to get down to a net zero. So I think China is very serious about meeting the commitments that have been made internationally. And certainly the message that the industry is getting from the government in China is a, a serious message of you will all have to decarbonize. Moving to India, I think India is a little bit uh, different situations. One company in India, Dalmia Cement, is uh, really the leading company in terms of reducing its uh, carbon footprint per ton of cement. They're very efficient plants. Their energy consumption uh, is very low. And they also uh, use a lot of slag, a lot of non-clinker cementitious material. The other thing that is particular about India is that there's a shortage of good quality limestone. As a result, there's really an openness to using other materials. So there's an openness to LC3, a lot of interest in LC3 in India, but there's an openness to other chemistries, other ways of making cement. Now, I think India is in a good position to benefit from the loss and damage fund or whatever that winds up being called that we've heard about at COP27 
recently. So, of course, developed countries have promised a billion dollars a year of help for developing countries. That has not really been delivered so far. But I think there are CCS projects that are ready to go in the cement industry in India once there is a mechanism for them to receive some sort of carbon credits through the loss and damage fund or some other mechanism. Outside India and China, of course, it's a bit more of a mixed picture in the developing world. There are some areas in the Middle East, particularly in the oil-rich countries in the Middle East, where there's a lot of work on green construction and on decarbonizing both the cement industry and more generally the economies. But it's the same sort of phenomenon that we're seeing, that where there is money and funding available, then we can make progress. And where that's not available, then things don't change. That's good. No, it's interesting to hear the different ways in which that decarbonization landscape is unfolding in China and India and across some of the Middle East, for instance. So I want to wrap up with one final question. The direct carbon intensity of cement production globally, it increased about 1.5% per year from 2015 to 2021. But the IEA has said we're going to need annual cuts of 3% per year in carbon intensity to get on track for net zero by 2050. On a personal level, what makes you hopeful that we can get closer to this benchmark? So I think one of the things that has changed in perhaps the last two or three years is just the attention that is being placed on not only cement, but also construction as a sector that needs to move more quickly on decarbonization. So the focus up until relatively recently has really been on fossil fuel companies and the role that construction plays has perhaps not been fully appreciated. And I I think that's changing. and, And I think in many countries, it's already changed. When I talk to construction companies, developers, cement companies in Europe, you can see everybody is spending a great deal of time on both circularity and reducing carbon. So I think that the that's being put into this is leading to progress. And we need to have incentives elsewhere. We'll only make significant progress if governments put in place incentive to push businesses in that direction. that's our show for today. Thanks again to Ian for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about the World Cement Association and what it's up to, go to their website. It's worldcementassociation.org. You should also look out for their annual conference and exhibition. They're holding it this year in person in Dubai on October 24th to 25th of 2023. You can also check out the WCA's podcast, The Clinker Factor, where Ian talks all things cement and concrete with sector executives, founders, and analysts. Now, if you like this conversation, do spread the good word online. You can find us and tag us at The Warden Current on Instagram and at Warden Current on Twitter. That's all for this week. Thanks again for joining us and look out for more episodes in the coming weeks. We've got guests from exciting new startups in carbon capture, energy efficiency, and more.